Can learning transform your life? This is Impact Learning with Maria Zinedou, a podcast where you will hear personal stories about how we learn, work, and live in the connection economy. Together with her guests, she will teach you to design your learning journey and create the life you want. On today's episode... Because if you have the proper education, you will be able to attend certain like uh, like colleges, certain types of schools, certain types of like economic like development. And I think it all starts with that education. If we go after that and we don't compete so much, but we work more together, then I think we can have a good shot in this next generation and, and develop those leaders in a much better, more efficient way. Hey, it's Maria, and you are listening to Impact Learning. I hope you and your families are all doing well and staying calm and healthy. My guest today is a strategic, creative and visionary entrepreneurial professional with a unique blend of scientific research skills gained in academia, complemented by business consulting experience with companies ranging from early-stage startups to Fortune 100 corporations. Today, she is leveraging her passion for science and business to create an impact on underserved, underrepresented, female-identifying students in New York City. I'm thrilled to introduce to you today Suzanne Kappendijk, founder and president of EdSnaps, a non-profit organization that wants to increase diversity in the science, technology, engineering and math workforce. Through partnerships and collaborations with academia, non-profit organizations, corporations and individual volunteers, they are providing free, after-school, and summer programs to female-identifying students through hands-on experiences and real-life interactions. During our conversation, we unpack how EdSnaps addresses STEM talent gaps in a creative, positive and collaborative environment that enables their students to build 21st century skills and prepare to enter the next phase of their careers as well-rounded and well-grounded STEM community leaders. We also discuss how Suzanne bootstrapped her original idea in 2017, starting with a pilot summer program, and how she evolved their free programs and went entirely online amid the pandemic. She also talks about the new summer 2020 intern and fellow programs she created to offer paid internships to undergraduate and graduate students whose internships were cancelled. Tune in to learn from a creative and business-savvy social entrepreneur who knows how to turn constraints upside down and solve real-life problems in education. Let's dive right in. Hello, Suzanne. Welcome to Impact Learning. Hello, Maria. Thank you for having me. Let's start with your childhood. What's your favorite memory related to learning? My favorite childhood memory is when I was about six years old, seven years old. Um, I grew up in a very small village in the Netherlands. And when I grew up, I, I liked to read books. I still like to read books, but there was nothing there. I mean, we just had a few books in school. But then when I was seven years old, they were building a library in our village. And we had like a drawing contest. You had a color contest and I I got a prize over there. And my prize was getting a book from the library. And that opened my eyes and that started the learning process even more exponential. So that is one of my favorite childhood memories. What did you win the prize for? for coloring between the lines and like (laughs) making a very nice palette of like colors and they loved that a lot and in the age category of like I think it was the six to seven year olds I got first prize. Perfect apparently not everybody can color between or within the lines. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Well done well done. 
What was uh, the thinking around learning and education at home? Um, well, my parents always stimulated learning a lot. Um, always like uh, go out and, and find things that you really like, but also ask about it. And they always stimulated that. I, I remember my mom and dad were forever members of the book club. So once a month, uh, a book arrived at our home. And we could like sometimes my sister and I could choose a book. And when I was like three or four years old, my mom already decided that take your kid to work was uh, was an option for me. So in a way, it was getting rid of me for one day and bother your dad a little bit at work. So I was going with my dad to work and spent the day over there and learned a lot, I think, uh, unconsciously or subconsciously. And I think that's where my love of learning and exploring and educating comes from. Beautiful. What was this environment? Where were your uh, dad uh, working? My dad uh, worked at a, um, a company where uh, physically and menti- mentally handicapped people are working. So in the Netherlands, they are considered as very much a part of the workforce. So they earn money, they just go to work every day, they get like their sick leave, they get vacation leave, and that's where my dad worked, and they had different departments, so they had like woodworking, they had like several projects, they had like metal, they had like the outside services, so you were, I was exposed to a lot of different people and a lot of different like environments. Beautiful experience, to also have like early on, that's uh, yep. really nice. And what were you interested in learning at school? Uh, that depended, I think, from phases. I remember in when I was in elementary school, I was very much intrigued by history. Um, I uh, was also intrigued a little bit by traveling. So my first idea was that I wanted to become a flight attendant. But then I discovered that you have to learn languages and I wasn't really fond of languages that much. So uh, that was not an option anymore. Uh, I think when I went into, uh, like, we don't have middle school in the Netherlands, so you go straight from elementary school to high school. In high school, I was more interested in biology in general, but also I really enjoyed math, and that was one of my favorite ones. I think those were the main subjects. Chemistry was also very interesting, so kind of like always that, like, STEM-focused, like, inclination there that I had, like, over the years. Mm-hmm. And what did you end up studying at uh, the university? Um, I decided to go for the undergrad route in biology, mainly because it was a very general subject. Um, at that time, it was in the 80s, um, biomedical sciences started to come up, but the curriculum wasn't fully developed yet. And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do with biology, so that's why I said I'm, I'm going to choose biology. And after that, I might specialize and find something that really makes me passionate about and work on that one and explore that in, an, in a more in-depth situation. Mm-hmm. You also did your master degree in biology, right? Yeah, that's, that's one program in the Netherlands, so that's a little bit of a difference there. Okay, so it's one. And then after you complete your master's in biology, what do you study? What did you do next? I, uh, I was in my fourth year of biology, and uh, in your fourth year, you have to do some research projects. Um, I started my first research projects in the Department of Endocrinology, so working on hormone analysis in fish, in the eel. Um, that was very interesting, but then I got engaged in the uh, world of pharmacology, uh, which was very interesting to me. Um, so mechanisms of actions, how do drugs work on a brain, what, what happens, uh, what happens with the behavior. And I really liked that uh, field of research a lot. So I, uh, I applied for a job position as a graduate student um, in, at the Erasmus University in Rotterdam. And I got a position, so I did my graduate work in uh, neuroscience, but then specifically in pharmacology and working on drug of abuse, so mechanisms of actions of different types of drug of abuse. Mm-hmm. And then you pursued more postdoctoral studies in neuroscience, and I think there is an element of psychology as well. Correct. That was at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden, in Stockholm. Um, I spent one and a half year there um, working on different angles and more the, um, the chemistry of uh, like what happens in the brain exactly after 
being exposed to drug of abuse, like it's all preclinical research. So we do, I did animal research. Um, I spent like one and a half year there and then I went back to the Netherlands and we started working more into like the neuroscience in the psychology field. So more like behavior wise, like what is happening after being exposed to drug of abuse. And after that period, um, we, uh, my, my family and I moved to the United States and I started um, having my own lab over here in the state of Florida at Florida State University. And I examined the effects of nicotine on cognitive development in animals. And that was in the zebra finch, so the songbird. So you have a very diverse, but also comprehensive understanding of uh, like the human body, the brain, from a biology, from a pharmacology, and then the neuroscience, psychology aspect. So how do you see human beings uh, in, in learning? Um, human beings are very complicated um, internally, and of course they are affected by parameters externally. Um, but I think that anybody can learn. And having you being told that you're not able to learn something or to comprehend something, I don't think that is fair to uh, the other person that you're telling that. Because I think um, everybody has like a template and it's, it's just a matter of like, how are you approaching that template to get the best from people and, and to make them open for learning and accessible for learning. Um, what I see now, for example, with the COVID-19 situation is, for me as a neuroscientist, it's very worrisome because we do a lot of hands-on. And I think hands-on are important parts of like to, to stimulate parts of your brain that you're not getting stimulated when I'm sitting in front of the computer the whole day. I don't say that sitting in front of the computer is bad for you, but you have to have some variation there. So what I like to, to, to do is like work with like students and work with everybody is like to, to make sure that you get like different variations. So you will stimulate that whole brain and not develop one part of it. And to tell people, and I've heard this thousands and thousands of times, I always tell my students if they could have given me a dollar for every time they say, you cannot do that either because I'm a girl, because it's too hard or because I, anything else there, I would have been a millionaire when I was like 20. So I wouldn't have to have worked for the rest of my life, maybe. But <laughs> see, but that is, that it is just that perception that you create in people's brain that they cannot learn, but everybody can learn. It's just like, you know, the matter of like, how do you present it? If we do, we, we've done, we've run our summer program for eight weeks. Every day we go in at 10 o'clock in the morning. We stop at 12 o'clock in the morning. We give a workshop to our students. They learn a lot, but it is just a way of how you present it. Are you making learning fun? And that is, I think, a very big key element. If you are not so stressed out. And I understand with like, you know, the teachers have to go through a certain curriculum. They have to like deliver, but it's just a message there. Like, how are you delivering it? And, and with us, we have the luxury to run a summer program. We can afford in a way quite time. Like we're not stressed with deadlines. Um, we learn in a, in a fun way. And I think if you present it in different ways to people, they will get like the, what will work best for you. And then learning is fun. Learning will be easy. And everybody learns at their own capacity, at their own speed, but everybody can learn. What happens and you decide to pursue an MBA and change your trajectory? What's the story? So... In a way, pharmacology, when you teach pharmacology, pharmacology is not one of the most sexiest subjects that they are teaching in medicine. It's a hard subject. It's a dose response curves. You have to do it correctly. Um, I was at that time, uh, I think 46 or 47. And I started to think like, do I want to stay in, in the academic environment? Um, I did a lot of research and, and, and I did a lot of outreach already as like a volunteer scientist here in the schools in, in Tallahassee. I was a mentor in several pro, uh, programs. And I'm like, I don't think I am suitable for doing this job for another 25 years. Can I see myself only in academia? Do I have other qualities? 
And a friend of mine from New York visited and he says like, Suzanne, I can see you're not completely happy. And I said, no, I'm not. I'm, I'm trying to find something where I can find more creativity. And like, you know, the startup companies were starting to come up and incubators were starting to rise. And he says, well, why don't you pursue like a career and get your MBA? So I told him, I said, well, I'm way too old to learn. I'm like, you know, I am not going back to school. And he says, he started laughing in my face and he says, uh, you know, I, I would like to kick some part, but he says, I'm not going to do that. But I'm just like, you know, I, I'm totally disagreeing. So I put him back on the plane to New York and I started thinking. And within a week I said, well, maybe I should pursue my MBA. So um, I went online and um, I, I did my MBA online, which was like a very big adventure for me because I'm always on the other side as a faculty member. So if my students had a problem with their, like, you know, with the blackboard or with whatever medium they were using, it's not my problem. But now suddenly I'm the student and I have a problem with this. So I now <laughs> I fully understood their problems. So, yeah. well, long story short, I, I got my MBA and then I said, you know what, I... Uh, I'm stepping out of academia. I don't want to. I don't want to teach anymore. I don't want to want to do this. I, I'm going fully corporate, and yeah, that was my idea. And I'm like, well, but I don't think I can go fully corporate because I I would like to give back to the community. I saw the joy when I was like doing the voluntary scientist club at at the middle school, and to see the understanding from some of the students once once they get it, once they you know you explain some kind of like bioluminescence or you explain solar energy or you you talk about like skin grafts or you go to the CPR course with them. And then suddenly you see that understanding coming in and then it's like, well, that's what I like to see. So it's like, so I'm like, yeah, I'm trying to find. So within a couple of years, I uh, I got like to where I am, uh, where I am right now, um, working with the nonprofit organization that I founded since 2017. Um, I like it. It's, it's like it's giving back to the community, but it's also I have to communicate with corporates. I have to communicate with academia. I can understand these worlds because I'm coming from that world. And to make that like collaboration between those all those entities you have government you have academia you have corporate you work with the communities directly to make those communications to make the collaborations to in a way i mean it sounds cliche but connecting the dots and make people understand that we're all in it for the same reason we just come from different angles that is where my passion is and that is what i found after so many years and um and, and i learned like over the summer course that it's not bragging if it's based on facts i'm good at it and that is that is what i do now and i can be of more service to the student population to everybody else by working in this way than had i stayed in academia and only like focused on pharmacology and teaching their medical students because i think there's nothing wrong with that but it's not my job any longer and I don't get the fulfillment that I get now every day when I go back to when I go to my bed and go to sleep because I feel fulfilled every day. And you are good at it, but and you are very uh, this is true. This is the fact. Uh, and you, you have uh, written that you are um, passionate about research, science and business. Yep. For most people, these things are completely opposing to each other. <laughs> and it's hard to even, you know, put them in the same sentence. You, you uh, talked already about certain skills and experience and how you bring them to your current work. And of course, you get joy out of it. You enjoy it. You, you see the, the impact. You, you love what you are doing. What are the most critical skills and experience that you are bringing now to your students? who are starting, like they don't have your experience. What are the skills and experience that you are, you, you believe that they have the most impact on them? Um, well, it's, it's, it's two way, of course. Um, we always talk about hard skills and soft skills. And the students have to understand that they have to have a certain level of hard skills. So for example, you have to know how to read. You have to know how to write, but you also have to learn how to use a computer. It's simple, it's basic, but it's like we work a lot with uh, students that have English as a second language. So languages are very important. How do you express yourself? And I always hear, oh, but Dr. C, I'm not good at writing. Well, then we help you. We do like a workshop on writing. And that might sound very basics, but I think if you don't have that same level of basics, you're missing out already. If I assume 
that I that you know how to write and I step over that one then we're already losing a student if they are not at that level yet so what we're doing is we're making that level field uh, equal and if you know how to write well great because then you as a student can already be a mentor to the weaker student at that time point so you're already trained in like leadership like like fostering the leadership in other students and this student who might not be like profound yet at writing might be very good at math for example or for in another in another discipline so when we have our financial literacy workshop at a very low level so no stocks no bonds no things no just simple what do you have and what do you give out? And it's like getting the balance sheet there. Simple, basic foundations. And I think that is what's what's lacking in most... Uh, people assume a lot. And, and that is what you cannot do. So that is where we start with that playing that level field. We give them the hard skill tools. We do photography. We do other types of things there. But just like adding on and adding on. And then what we do in our programs mainly is we work on interaction between each other. So our, most of our programs are focused and, and only for female identifying students. So they learn how to work in a team. They learn how to communicate, but also to collaborate. So we don't have teams that are like set in stone from day one to the last day. We always mix them up. They work with everybody. And then you have like, they come to me and they say, Dr. C, I really don't like to work with that student because she's always so nasty. It's like, well, hmm. did you ask why she's nasty? Of course not. I don't talk to her. And then when they work together in a team, two days later, they come to you and they say, actually, that student, I learned a lot from her. And, and she's not as nasty as she is. So it's like to get to know each other and look beyond that, that face. Look, look what's inside there and appreciate what the other students have and then work as a team together. So we always end up with the most fantastic ideas when they collaborate with each other. And, and that is like kind of the skills that we are teaching them. And that is what I would like to give to all the students in our programs. It's like not only hard skills, hard skills we can teach any, everybody, but it's that soft skills that we need to work on. And that is what they, what they, at the end, it's always there. You can always see it. It's like they communicate with each other. They keep in touch with each other. They are starting to ask questions. They're starting to make jokes with each other. And you can see the dynamics of the groups flow in there. And that's what I what we bring to the table. Beautiful. What is the name of the organization you are talking about that you are pursuing all these programs and activities? So our organization is called AdSnaps. Where does the name come from? Um, well, when I was traveling back from a mentoring event uh, where I was a mentor when I just moved to New York, I was thinking, why am I a mentor in this program? Well, I knew why I was a mentor in the program, because I like the program a lot. But I'm like, why don't I start my own organization so I can take all the units that I designed and developed over the years in like Florida? Why don't I make it into my own organization and start working the way I would like to see it and I can bring it to the table and focus on the female identifying students? So that was like in October, I had that brainwave, I think, I called the brainwave. Uh, and then I, uh, I called my husband because he was still at that time uh, in Florida. And I said, I would like to start my own nonprofit organization focusing on STEM content uh, curriculum. So he says, what do you need? I said, well, I need a logo. I can do all the other things like the paperwork I can start and all the curriculum I can start. But uh, I said a logo maybe. So we started like brainstorming a little bit. And um, like when you have your, your phone, you have that little camera over here, the little eye. And if you look at our logo, you can actually see that at snaps is like at stats for educational. And then snaps is like kind of like you take a shot with your photo camera because that was my first unit I wanted to teach the photography with like a camera because we have low income students. We want to have a high impact. So we need like we don't have fancy computers. Sometimes we don't even have Wi-Fi when we, when we work with our after-school programs. And it was always a, a hassle. But I noticed that all these students have cell phones because they have emergency plans. They can, can get it through their parents. They might have five siblings, but there's at least one phone in the household. So that's why I thought like, well, a cell phone that is like approachable for everyone we can do a lot with cell phones, so why not have that as kind of our logo in there, embedded in there, and then call it AdSnaps. It's easy to remember, so that's where the name mm -hmm. AdSnaps is coming from. Brilliant.
And I love that you thought of the problem you wanted to solve, develop the STEM curriculum and prepare this, you know, um, uh, female identifying students, but also you thought about where they are, what resources they have. So how can I help them? And then, of course, this became your logo and your name, but it's it's brilliant. I love this idea of uh, solving a problem and then working with what you have, you know, at, yep. at your hands and, yep. and, and make the best you can. Why is the curriculum and the STEM curriculum essential? And what uh, what's the biggest change you want to create for the female identifying students? What do you want to see them get to? I want to see them happy. I want to see them confident. I want them to develop in independent people that can do the best they can with the lowest amount of resources. Sometimes they don't have resources at all because we're talking about underserved and underprivileged students most of the time. I want them to understand that it doesn't matter how big of an equipment you have. If you don't use your brain, you're not going to go anywhere. You have to be critical. You have to problem solve. You have to do the best you can. And by making them aware of their brain capacity, I mean, the brain is the most beautiful organ, I think, still in the whole human body. So use it and use it to your advantage. And since I already said everybody can learn, it's like, but it's like, how are you going to learn? Learn how to problem solve. Learn how to use your full brain and, and get it to fruition. And when people say you're not good at math, that's mainly because they are not good at math themselves or they had like an, a bad experience in the past. Everybody can do math. It's just the way how you bring it. And that is what I want our students, every student to understand. You have that full capacity. My job is to wake up that capacity and make you aware of that capacity. And no matter where you are in the world, no matter how poor you are, no matter how rich you are, no matter how intelligent people think you are, if you don't use your brain and you cannot problem solve, you're nowhere. And that is what I want them to, to learn. I mean, you can problem solve with a piece of paper. That's it. You can write your solution in the sand on the beach. But if you don't use your brain, you have nothing. So that is what I want my students to learn. And that is what I want to give to every student. You have value. Use the value to your advantage. You just connected the dots for me as a biologist and a neuroscientist and what you are doing today. You just, that was beautiful. The most beautiful story. You really connected the dots, how you are putting everything, experience, knowledge to practice, to help female identifying students and human beings reach their potential and have a good life and do the work that they like to do. I just love that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. What I found very intriguing with your work is that um, you started with one pilot program. So it's 2017, and then, of course, today you have other things. Take us through the process, because I think that's also very important for people who want to create, you know, different things and contribute to learning. As an entrepreneur, as someone who doesn't have, you know, unlimited resources, take us through the process of how you started and then where you are today. Okay. I started with a budget of zero. Uh, so <laughs> that's because the problem is if you apply for grants, and we all know that uh, uh, coming from academia, if you apply for a grant and you can't show data, you have nothing. So people don't believe in you. And that is like a, a thing. But in order to produce data, you have to have money. So that's kind of like a catch-22. So I, uh, we discussed it at my house and uh, I said, I really would like to run a pilot because I, without a pilot, I don't have data. So how can I apply for grants? So we decided to put some uh, private money in there from our own bank account. So I could run the program for three weeks. And, but in the meantime, I was networking a lot between that period of like January and like July when we started our first pilot program. I had one of the principals uh, at the John F. K. campus in, in New York, like she believed really very much in the program. So she offered me like uh, the school, the classroom, so I could have a base, which was like fantastic. So uh, we started with seven students and what we did is we just went on field trips and we just showed them what is possible. And the funny story was when I started working in the Bronx, a lot of my friends said like, why are you going to the Bronx? It's so dangerous. And I said, 
well, I'm not going there at night. I'm not going there at two o'clock in the morning. So I, I think I'm fine. A lot of people are taking the subway. So why can I not do that? I mean, I am not different from anybody else there. So, but then I get to the school and we did the summer program and I suggested, well, we go and go on the subway. We travel through the whole of New York because we go to like uh, companies, we go to academia, we go to like the library. We, we just do like field trips. And the students looked, some of them looked a little bit like worried to me. And they are like, um, do you think it's safe outside the Bronx? You know, like, yeah, sure it is. I mean, I traveled there and I, <laughs> I said, so the whole perception there, that was like one of the things that I've really, really learned. It's like, it's, it's all in, in the perception there. It's like, you know, it's, to me, that was like mind boggling. So I said, okay, I'm safe here. So we can, we can have the best time ever. So we started with that pilot program. I got some data out of that. I worked with students really, really hard because I mean, we, we, I did not know what to expect. And, and the thing was like, I had so many curricula created like in Florida. So for me, it was a no brainer. I'm like, okay, I just take those curricula and I implant them in New York and I'm good to go. Well, it's not true. Because the students in like Florida are not exactly the same as the students in New York. They are different. And I don't say they are better, they are worse. No, they are just different. And I love that because that is the diversity that comes to, into place as well. So that is where I started first. I, I designed the curriculum. We did those three weeks. We evaluated and then I had some data. And then people started noticing us. And in the meantime, I was just networking and creating like connections with the community. And I barter a lot. So it's like, okay, can you give a workshop in my program so I can go over your resume or I can give you an hour of coaching? And that's the way how I did it. And that's the way I still do it. Because up until today, I have like almost 600 connections in my network. And they just like help me out with like workshops and, and, and give back to the community in, in, in many different forms. So that is where I'm really thankful for because all these people are helping out and I could not do it without them because the funding is still very hard to get because we are a small like nonprofit organization. So that is one of the concerns because a lot of the money is being funneled in those big NPOs. But the problem is we work with sustainability. So I train my students. So some of my first year students, my 2017 students, they come back as counselors two years later and they give back to the students that are like in the programs now. So we run now, um, before COVID hit, we had family nights. We had after school programs. We had the summer workshop studios. We had the full summer program and we had the CLO leadership program. So five different programs. Due to COVID, we uh, could not run our summer program in person. So uh, I transferred the whole program online to an eight-week program. We also, most of the students that were in the CLO, in the Continuously Learning Officer Leadership Program, they already enrolled in college. Of course, all their internships were canceled. So within four weeks, I created all research project-based internships and fellowships. And I rerouted the money that we got. We got like 60% cut in funding, but with the 40%, I was able to install all 10 internships for the interns and the fellows. So they are all working now. They are actually in their last two weeks now from the eight to 10 week like internship they had. They are finishing up their projects and they worked for the whole summer for like two months on research projects. And the female counselors I have in the program because they are e-counseling the summer work students. So that's kind of like we went from one program in 2017 to four actually in-persons and now three uh, online programs because I couldn't go into the, the community center. So that was kind of like a little bit of a bummer. On the other hand, I think we made the best out of it. We were the only program that was up and running in the community center, offering a stable platform to our students, be there every week for them and actually made it made it fun and make it more understandable, made it more a little bit acceptable, um, help them out, give them mental support, give them like, you know, it's, it's different as, as in person, but we did what we could online. And with the Zoom meetings every week, I, I thought it, would, it went really well. And the summer program is fantastic. I mean, we got so much more traction and so much more people that were able to attend now because we go global and, and, that is one of the things that I think came out of this one. It, it, it has been fantastic over the summer. 
So let's talk about the programs. I want to discuss a little bit more the specifics and also thinking about the experience you are creating, the learning experience, but the broader experience you are creating for the students. So what are the three programs you are currently offering? So currently we offered um, an eight-week summer program. We meet every day on Zoom from 10 to 12. And during these Zoom meetings, we either have a workshop presenter coming in or we take an e-field trip. So uh, we go to and visit museums. Uh, we visit other centers. So we learn a lot and every day we're learning. Uh, so we had like an, um, an, a workshop on photography. We had a workshop on like math is fun. We had a workshop. Um, I did one myself on medicinal herbs. So how do you use plants in your backyard and our groups are creating new medicines. Uh, we did design thinking. We had like trend and mood board design. We had interview skills. Uh, we had like people coming in from the UK who is like a medical doctor who designs space medicine, who is, uh, we had like an Arctic explorer who went over the Antarctica by foot and uh, we had her tell her story. We had somebody from Seattle coming in. We had a previous undergrad student from my lab coming in who is now a very established researcher in San Francisco. So we exposed the students in this program to almost a hundred females and each had their story. Our team was past, present and future women of impact. The past women were women that were already like featured on stamps, on US stamps. The present women are women of all industries, of all ages, of all, well, of all, all over the world, who are in their career or like at the end of their career, mid-career and, and give like advice to our students. And the future women of impact are our students. So what we've done with them over these eight weeks, they are learning how to use soft skills, they learn how to interview, being interviewed. Uh, they learn how to use video. They learn how to use a camera. And they also learn how to work in teams. So the soft skill development. So for each student individually, we create personal value, but also professional value. And every student is unique. They take out of the program what they think is good for them at that time in their development. But it will help them to be more secure about themselves, to be more confident with themselves, and they can actually say, well, you know how to do this because I've done this in a workshop. And that gives them the power there. So we ask them to, um, they have to work on four different projects. So they are designing a calendar page, which features all these three, the past, the present and the future women. They have to design two stamps, one featuring themselves, one featuring the present woman. They interviewed because they interview one of those present women by themselves one-on-one -on -one, while the others are listening and watching. So that is kind of what they work. And then they work on a story map connecting those three women all together. Why did they choose the woman of like the past woman? What, what, what was like, you know, exciting about this woman? Why did they choose the present woman? And then they have to talk about themselves and connect everything together. And then August 18th, we have the showcases. So they have to show us a 1.5 to two minute video who they are. And that can be any medium. If they want to hip hop through those two minutes, that's fine. If they want to put it in poetry shape, it's fine. If they want to stand on their head and do like acrobatic tours or like dances, everything is fine as long as you show the judges and the panel who you are and what you learned over this summer. So that's one of our programs and that is wrapping up. Then we have our second program is the Continuously Learning Officer Program, Leadership. So leadership development that is for upper high school students and uh, also college enrolled students. This is our only program that is co-ed. Um, so we have male identifying and female identifying students. Uh, people say, hey, Suzanne, you're um, diverting from your mission because you're focused on female identifying students. That's like, uh, well, that's one way to look at it. I look at it in a different way um, <laughs> because 50% or 51% of the population is female. The other one is male. So when you are in college and when you are like uh, out of college, you cannot avoid meeting males. And when you're younger, when you're in middle school, we noticed, and we know from the like research-based, a lot of female-identifying students are holding themselves back because they don't want to look too smart towards the boys. Well, when and and they are holding themselves back, especially like in STEM-like based like uh, like subjects. 
So we cannot have like a co-ed program over there at that age. But once they are in college, it doesn't matter that much anymore. And you need to have male identifying and female identifying um, persons in our co-ed program or especially our leadership because they have to learn how to communicate with each other. And that is one very important part in this program. We have to work in teams. We have to expose them to what is like going on. What, how can we help them? What is lacking in their knowledge to become more successful and have like an, an, a real shot at jobs after they come out of college or when they go to graduate school? And I discovered that a lot of the college enrolled students, they don't have too much beef on their resume. So that's why we created this kind of like program. So we offer them workshops. Uh, we offer them what before um, this started, because that program started in 2019. So we just had a couple of like uh, meetings there in person. Um, what we would do is we would go to a company and then we would give a workshop in the company. So they would see how the company looks like how it is to work in that company, what the culture is. And then they would like do the workshop over there. And then we would like leave that company. And then four weeks later, we would visit another company, meet people that are working there, give a workshop again, and then go on. So we needed to adapt that program a little bit. So we had like workshops and that was like mainly what we did. So that at that time when then COVID-19 hit, some of these like leaders in that program, both males and, and female identifying students, they some of them had already lined up like their internships, but they were all canceled all at once. So I'm like, okay, what are we going to do now? And I said, you know what, um, since we cannot go into the Bronx and we cannot do our like our programs in person, we can take that money that we usually spend on like food because we, we feed our students like during the days with like snacks and, and lunch and like uh, afternoon snacks and we travel and we have to pay like entry fees. That money we can reroute and then if I do that a little bit carefully, we can serve all our students, create a research project for all the students and then like have them work over the summer. At least they have an internship so they can show when the situation is over or when they are changed and when they can go back in person or when they are going to that next phase to a graduate program or to a first job application or go back to college, they can actually show the other side that they did something over the summer, that they worked on a research project. I've seen their projects and it is mind boggling. They learned so much, not only hard skills, but also the soft skills. They are participating in the society. They are contributing. They are giving back to the community. They are working in corporate. They are working in academia. They are working with AdSnaps because they are working as counselors in our summer program, giving back to the students, being a role model, explaining to them, guiding them. So that is really great. And then what I did for the interns and the fellows is we created a mentor-mentee pool around it. So every Monday evening over the summer, the mentors and the mentees are coming together. They have a 30-minute counseling. So they go into their chat rooms. Then they come back and they talk a bit more with us uh, because I, I don't mentor. I just coordinate in that, in that respect. So I found a mentor that is matching with each mentee. And they have fun. And sometimes they meet each other outside the Monday evening if it's not possible. And that is what we created over this summer. So those are the three programs that we run. And they are going to end in the middle of August. Then we are taking a little break and we're restarting all the programs online again in September. And except, of course, for the summer program, because that has to wait until the summer of 2021. But we have like our after school programs are starting to get up then, um, especially like with the New York like uh, schedules. And then we have some different projects in the pipeline that I have to develop before uh, September hits and then we have like some special programs as well but those are project based and some students might like it sometimes some of others are not interested at all but the ones that are interested are offered a spot and they can take it or they can leave it that's up to them I cannot decide what they need to do. One of the counselors I think it was you know previous student graduate of the program and it was in the video of 2018 and she said, when I became a counselor, I had no other choice but to be a leader. And I love that. And I get chills as I'm, as I'm thinking of that. Because you're also creating these experiences. But real life experiences. You know, real people, corporations, academia, research projects. 
it's really experiential learning, but it's like in, in the real world, it doesn't get more real than that. Well, that is, that is one of the goals that I had because I hear a lot of, um, you know, when you go to these talks sometimes in the evenings in person, um, you hear a lot of people talk about giving back to the community. And I always had the, um, when, I, when, I, when I refer to like, you know, I take my curriculum from Florida and I implant them in like New York and it's good to go and I don't have to do anything. In order to understand the community, you have to go there and examine what is going on there. Because I can advocate, okay, they have an underserved population, but if I've never met the population that is living in the Bronx, how do I know what to do? And then they say, yeah, but what do you know? What do you care? Well, that is something I, I think that is the most aggravating thing I hear from people because they first look at me, you're a white female and like you have nothing to do there. What is your business here? And I'm like, well, I'm coming from a very small village. People told me that I cannot do it. I spoke with a very heavy accent in the Netherlands in my Dutch language. So people made fun of me. My physical appearance was not very attractive. So people made fun of me. Um, I had a very big scar on my face. So people made fun out of that one as well. So there are certain things that um, I, might, I might be white, but I had some problems as well. And uh, sometimes, and especially like when we have the open house, people are looking at me like, what are you doing here? Oh, it's one of those, you know? But then they understand that, no, I'm not one of those. I know exactly what we're talking about when we're talking about like underserved and underprivileged because I came from that like area. And that is one of the things that I think a lot of people forget that you have to know your population first because then you know what is needed. And then I can see what is needed over there. And I'm like, okay. And I, sometimes I get really frustrated because I'm like, the solution would be so easy. But why is everybody so not working in the same way? And then I understand like it's coming from that competitive element. I'm very competitive as well. But you have to know when to be competitive and when to collaborate. And I can see value in other like NPOs, why would I consider them as my competitor? Why don't we work together? We pull our resources together. We can serve much better the community. So I can help you, you help me, and together we can serve many, many more. And I think that is what is sometimes lacking. People do a lot of talk, but they don't understand where they are needed. And if we could find a formula to make that work and, and, and make people better understand where it is needed then we could like relocate resources and we could like serve many many more students and make them like uh, known and, and bridge that gap between inequality uh, inequality not only uh, well mainly first of all in education because if we cover that one the rest will start falling into place because if you have the proper education you will be able to like attend certain like uh, like colleges certain types of schools certain types of like economic like development and i think it all starts with that education if we go after that and we don't compete so much but we work more together then I think we can have a good shot in this next generation and, and develop those leaders in a much better, more efficient way. Mm -hmm. You answered a big question I had because based on your experience and skills and qualifications, you know, business and research and everything, I thought to myself, why is she creating so many partnerships? Why is he like, why does he have so many volunteers? I do understand there is, you know, resources and money involved, and time involved, you cannot do everything yourself. But I, I thought from the work that I, you know, I've studied that you've done, that you've went, that you went above and beyond. Like the partnerships, they, you know, everything is in collaboration with someone else, a corporation, a nonprofit, a, a female, you know, a role model. And I thought to myself, but you explain it very well now. It's, it's bringing everybody together because we are solving the problem of access to learning and education. It's not like you are only running your nonprofit and someone else, they are running theirs. And we have corporate responsibility, you know, initiatives. It's how do we bring them together? And I think that's, I can see how you are doing this exceptionally well, and it's not simple or easy or trivial because collaborations are the hard part of business. But I, I can see now how everything is, is working and, and why. 
why you are doing this again because there was a more simple way to do a lot of things yourself and perhaps hire some people and have full control of everything but i really appreciate that aspect the the collaborative aspect and you are teaching also your students and fellows and counselors and interns in different capacity they are seeing that in action they are seeing how the world can work exactly and and i think that is an important part because uh, we had for example an, a panel discussion with like uh, like two master students uh, one that just started like a college uh, two that were enrolled in college and one graduate student all different disciplines and they came to like uh, on a friday they they visited us in the summer program and when you hear them speak and when you hear them like what kind of an ideas they have to to work together and to like pursue their careers our students saw that there is a lot of collaboration, a lot of like, you know, and yeah, if you have one job and you all qualify for the job, that is, of course, a competitive element in there, but there is more to it. And and that is why I, they, they, they always ask me like, hey, Dr. C, why don't you give a coding course? I'm like, why would I do that? There are 79 coding courses only in New York. I'm like, why would I compete with them? No. If I have a student in the program and we do coding one day in the program, uh, we code without computers because usually we don't have computers to our availability and I don't have uh, the money to buy 25 of those. And uh, so we code without computers. We just do the problem solving. If we have a student in there that is very interested in coding, well, then by all means, I'm going to connect you with like a coding course or with a coding like NPO or with a coding whatever entity. And I'm going to say, hey, I have a student that is very much interested in this in this field. Can you help? And that is, I think, much more valuable than sitting there and making it mandatory for these students who are not interested in that, sit them three weeks through the, this course or be in competition. No, what we do is we, we serve them a whole plate of like opportunities. Someday they will like a workshop better than the other day. And I said, well, that's fine. Because I don't like everything myself as well. Nobody does, I think. So it's like you have preferences. And if I can choose, yeah, of course, I'm going to go for like the math workshop instead of for like uh, learn how to speak French, for example, unit, because I struggle much more. But on the other hand, I have to do this as well, because maybe I struggled with French when I was in high school. But now when I'm older, maybe I can see different connections. So I don't struggle with French anymore. So I have to show my students that, hey, I'm learning as well. So you're never too old to learn. And it's like, and what I experienced maybe as a teenager might not be the same as when I'm now middle-aged. So you, you, you change that, like that field and that experiences over the years. So that is what we're trying to do. It's like, I'm not forcing you to pick a career because you're what, 11, 12 years old, 15, 16. Who am I to tell you what to do with your life? But I just offer you some choices and you explore and, they, and you cannot go wrong. And, and we don't give grades to them. Uh, we don't give an A or a B if they don't like it. No, that's your choice. And that is, I think, what makes it much more fun and makes it so accessible, but also makes it, yes, there is competition in the world. You have to be the best if you want to get something. That's why we teach them the hard skills. But the soft skills, that is something when you go for an interview and you land the job. And that is something that is like, they have to learn both ways. So that's where we come, the connections there. We have people from all different industries coming in and it is just so much fun. And I'm so thankful that we have so many volunteers coming in because it's it has been terrific this summer. So it has been every year, but every year I think we can't top it. And every year we top it again. So it's like, it's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. So everyone who is speaking or, you know, offering the workshop, they are all volunteers. Yes, we have. Well, um, I have to say we have 92% is volunteers. I pay for a few workshops, but that is mainly because those are small businesses and they need support. And I have a little bit of money for that. My board of directors and I, we created that whole, the whole skill there. And I said, these are very small like businesses. They need some support there because we work with them for some years already. And I would like to do that as a token of appreciation. I can't give them much, but at least it's something. And that is like, we, we pay a few of them, but mainly the ones that are coming in are in-kind donations. Mm-hmm. And the students, th- uh, do they have to pay anything or is it free? No, it's totally free for the students, all programs. Okay. okay. And then the interns and the fellows, the program you, you had this year, you have this summer. Uh, this is a little bit paid 
Yes, they are paid 20 hours a week. Because if I if I did 40 hours a week, I can't pay them all. So it's like <laughs> it's a little bit of like uh, going shaping and it's like working, being creative with the financial means I have. I love that. I see the I see the science and the business. <laughs> I see like being creative with my finance and my budget. I love oh, yeah, that. Oh, yeah, you have to. <laughs> you know what I like and I want to highlight that? I think you help the students through the experience use their brain and make the best out of their brain, you know, the brain that they are given. But I think also you help them and you guide them to change their mind, whether they don't like this workshop or whether they don't think they can get along with this student because it sounds or looks like this and that and everything else. They also like they use their brain and also they change their mind. Correct. And what are the skills? I mean, these are the two skills that we need to do any, any work, any job and have a good life. Exactly. So clearly, you're very creative with your budget. Uh, how do you get donations? We have uh, different uh, partners. So we have like two big sponsors. The Herman Miller Foundation is a, a big sponsor for, for like three years already. So that's like really fantastic. And ADP is one of our bigger sponsors. We also have Palm Drive Capital that like sponsored our CLO leadership program. And then we have partners that are like, uh, we don't contribute with money to each other, but we work really close together. We have like nine or 10 of them. Um, and then we have like private donors uh, that are giving in. We are on Amazon Smile. So if people are willing to like look us up and, and, uh, and choose us as our target, that would be really fantastic. Um, we get, um, I try to put in grants, um, but of course now the climate is not really great. We were like ending up in the top five, but then uh, many of these foundations, they decided to uh, divert the money and give it to organizations that are providing directly food to students and people in need so I can understand that because this is kind of in a way our summer program is then a luxury compared to like you know what 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 happens if you don't have food so that is like an it's understandable so we're still trying to get like foundation money uh, we write grants um, it's it's sometimes hard because we don't have enough people that are helping us with writing grants um, so we depend on like, we have a little bit of a different mix of everything. So one person's foundations and hopefully now we have enough data and we've shown that we are like a good organization. We are in good standing. We uh, use our money like responsible. Hopefully we can find different types of champions and hopefully we get like some foundation more money. What are the metrics you have for the organization? How do you, um, I guess, track your progress? That's a very good question because metrics are important. Um, we do um, evaluations after our programs. Usually when we go in person, we have the surveys that are, the students are filling in. A lot of um, corporates, and maybe that's going to change now a little bit, but if you have sponsorship from a big company, they want to see numbers. They want to see, okay, are you serving 2,000 students a week? Or are you serving 2,000 students a year? I'm like, well, no, we are reaching maybe five, six hundred students, but we work very closely. So I am not going to go horizontal. I'm going to go vertical with the student. We start the development and maybe in two, three years, we can see the fruits of that. Sometimes they didn't like that because they don't have like tangible things. They don't see like the numbers there. So you're small. And I mean, that's, that's, that's the way we started. And I like that much better because for every student we are having now in our program, we don't affect only the student, but we affect their siblings. We affect their whole family. We may be affecting their peers. We create something there in the community. So that is like a really hard part to, to do and to like, how do you grasp that? How do you measure like success? How do you measure the impact? Well, out of the blue, you get like three years later, like an email. Hey, Dr. C., um, you know what you told me five years ago, I listened to that really carefully and now I'm successful in my college. Well, I can, I can let the, 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 the corporate know, but they couldn't give anything about that because that is one student. So what if we save that student and we gave him a good, like, or we gave her a good, like salary, we gave her a good education. We started that process of thinking that you are valuable, that you can do it with your brain. To me, that's priceless. But companies see N is one and they don't see N is thousand because they sometimes have that bragging sheet. Oh, we served so much in the community. But I think you have to go back and, and go back to those roots because that will 
what we are doing will have a ripple effect that is phenomenal, I think. It's just like, and, and that is how we start to keep track on that one. We videoed the students. It's like, tell me what you learned. Tell me what the impact was. So at least we have it on camera. Now with COVID-19, it's like actually working in our advantage because we can do podcasts, we can do recordings, we can do video. We can ask a lot of things in our surveys. So what we do now is we create surveys every day. We have like different questions there. So we can see the impact it has on our students on a daily basis. But then also like we create those tangible projects. So projects that they can be proud of that we can show to corporates is like this is what our students are doing. And whether they like it or not, well, that's their problem. It's not my problem. It's like, you know what? I can find ways of like getting that funded. If you don't see the, the, the value of our programs, do I really want to partner with you? No, I don't think so. And that is, I think, like the luxury that I, maybe it's arrogance, maybe it's luxury, but I'm like, no, if you don't see the value of this program, and if I have to explain it to you word by word by word, maybe... That's a waste of my energy. And maybe I should go after other people that see those metrics there. Of course, we, we keep track of our financials. Um, one of my board members is, uh, is the accountant on, on, the, on, the, on the board, of course. So uh, I get like, I have to like put in the budget. They have to approve it. Um, I have to explain why I want this, why I would like that. And I'm holding, uh, they hold me accountable. And uh, that is, I think, a good thing because every dollar that we receive is going to be spent on the students and not for something, anything else. So we can, we're very transparent in that way. If you want to see my, my spreadsheet, you can. That's no problem at all. So that is kind of like where we are like standing with the metrics. Um, I try to diversify the funding. So if one fund falls away, that we still have some funding there. And, you know, if push comes to shove and we run out of money, we still run the programs and we still offer it to the students because that is what is needed. That is what I want. And that is what uh, the students need. So that is kind of like filling that gap. I have a feeling you will not run out of money. Maybe some things, you know, you will have to overcome, but you will figure out a way oh. creatively <laughs> to turn, you know, to turn a constraint upside down and, uh, you know, keep moving forward. I, I, I'm, I'm certain, certain this will happen. Oh, my goodness. I'm so amazed and impressed, but also grateful for the work you're doing because I come from a working class. Uh, low-income family in Greece, you know, what we would call here working class was really low income. Uh, I was raised by a single mom and I know what it means, you know, to have first generation students. And I know everything you talked about, the middle school and, you know, STEM students, what they think about the boys and what happens later on and how we evolve our brain and use it. I mean, when you were sharing these stories, it's like almost you took me back, you know, 30 years and I was thinking of everything that I experienced. And I'll tell you, it's the role models, but also the environment and the program and the structure that help underserved female identifying in your case, because the, the, these are the ones you serve, move forward. Yeah. That's what we need. We need guidance. We need learning experiences. We need role models. We need mentors and counselors. And, and we need some resources. Or at least we need someone who knows how to use whatever resources we have you know, to, to move us forward. We don't need a lot, but we need to know how to use them. My favorite question. What is one thing you would like to leave your mark on within your lifetime? Oh, that is a very hard question. If it was up to me, I would, and that's a very big goal, um, I would overhaul the U.S. educational system. I would get rid of the middle school. I would put two years of the middle school with the elementary school, the last year of middle school at the high school, in that way, the students can learn in a very educational, positive way how to start working on the high school credits, how to work and prepare. You would avoid the whole culture of like middle school identity crises, I think, because some of them are not ready. I mean, there's a big difference between sixth graders. And I see that, like I saw that in Florida, I see it in different states as well. And I hear it from friends that I, that have like little children in different states, avoid that whole, um, like stress in middle school because it's not needed. 
And that is, I think, and in that way you prepare the students much better for high school. Not every student is college material. Don't force them to go into that one. Get some vocational studies in there because we need vocational training. We need people that are serving like in a way middle class, but also learn things like get your hands on there because that will be a generation that is coming now that we're, we're going to lack. And that is one of the things that I really would like to see. And that is where I would leave my mark on. So that's why we are so very amendment on like those hands-on experiences it's perfectly fine. I'm coming from like a culture where we didn't have middle school, where there are vocational ones and you have different tracks that you can do and you can always pursue a college like degree. But I think like forcing people and, and say like, oh, if you can't go to college, you're, uh, per definition, you're stupid. No, you're not. You're just different. You just use your brain in a different way. And I think to get them and give them the opportunity to be creative, we can foster the, the socioeconomic like climate much much better and serve everyone much better and i think that will increase the level of happiness and of contentness as well and and get that little bit of a different culture shift there and and our students are terrific they just are not giving the chances the way i think we should give them chances and that would be i would want to leave a mark on that one but uh, i'll start with one student at a time in the bronx and i think that that will work as well Brilliant. Thank you so much. That was such an insightful and uh, engaging and beautiful conversation. Thank you so much. You're very much welcome. I truly enjoyed this conversation as well. If you enjoy listening to Impact Learning, please leave us a review on iTunes to help people like you find this podcast. You can also subscribe and never miss an episode. And if you have friends and loved ones, who would be interested in this episode, please share it with them. Thank you. And remember, we can talk about learning, we can design it, or we can do both. This is Impact Learning. I'm your host, Maria Zenidou. Till next time.